Welcome to Let's Talk Law, the Law Careers podcast for students at King's College London. I'm Caroline Lindner, one of the careers consultants for the Dixon Poon School of Law at King's. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Laurence Hotez Leverge. Laurence is a Canadian qualified lawyer. She graduated in law from the University of Montreal and completed an LLM in transnational law, uh, gaining a distinction, specialising in business and human rights at King's. She is currently pursuing a career at the International Criminal Court, where she has been a trainee. She worked on the reparations proceedings for the Taganda defence team and just joined the Yakutom defence team for the trial phase of the case. Finally, Laurence has recently successfully completed all required examinations for her pending admission to the New York Bar. Welcome, Laurence. It's fantastic to have you here today on our podcast. Thank you very much for joining me. Hi, Caroline. Same pleasure this shared. Right. I guess the first thing I really wanted to ask you, what, what was what attracted you to a law degree? Because I should point out for our listeners that you you did civil and common law in Montreal. Um, so tell us a little bit about that. Um, so for the law degree part of it, I think there were two things that particularly attracted me to it um, first. I was, during high school, very involved in my community, in my school, doing a lot of extracurriculars. And this went on when I went, when I started college, which is right before university in Quebec. And so I kind of wanted a field uh, that I could study at university that would allow me to pursue this kind of involvement and active role. Um, But I didn't know exactly how later on I would want to be involved. So I thought law could kind of open doors while putting me on the right track for this. And also I was somebody who liked uh, natural sciences as opposed to social science. So I thought law was also the right combination, the the, the right compromise for me. And um, with regard to the study civil law and common law part, so in Quebec, we have a mixed system of civil and common law. So by default, when I started my degree, I was, of course, uh, three years, I did three years of civil law, but there was those classes that were incorporated, like criminal law and administrative law, which were by default of common law tradition. And so, and I went to do a summer in London because I was curious uh, of the, the common law world, if I can say it this way. And I had the opportunity to do a mini pupillage of two weeks, which I know is uncommon, but I got very lucky. And I did this mini pupillage at 4-5 Grayson Square, and I was shadowing uh, barristers and doing legal research for them, and this was completely new. And it was an eye-opening experience. And this was at the, in the middle of my civil law degree. And so it definitely opened the door for me, for my interest for common law. And I remembered um, the barrister I was shadowing one day uh, explained to me the facts of the case she was working on and then directly asked me, what do you think? <laughs> and I was a bit petrified, of course, but I, I remembered seeing some notions of common law and I had an answer for her. And I said, okay, I think it, it seemed to me that this could fall in promissory estoppel doctrine. And I looked all proud and she said, oh, you might be right. Can you leave <laughs> a memo on this, a research memo? And I was like so thrilled and so happy to have seen those notions, those, this notion. 
and and so it, it became clear to me that having this common law addition to my legal curriculum uh, was a must-have. No, it was a necessary thing if I wanted to go abroad and expand my horizon. And later on, well, it served me well to qualify for the New York bar. That's, that's really interesting. And as you say, that almost a eureka moment. I, I think I've read this, I've been taught this, and actually it now applies in practice, which I'm sure many people who go on to become barristers and lawyers will be able to identify with what you've just said. So um, you may well have touched upon this already with the mini pupillage, and you're, you're quite yeah. right to get two weeks is, is, is really good going. Um, <laughs> so when did you first start to consider your future career options and, and what were they? Okay. Um, well, the thing is, I felt like even in high school, you no, know, when I talked about being involved in everything, I think I always knew I, I wanted to stay involved, but like on, on a greater scope and, and expand kind of the issues I would be working on. So this notion of becoming an international lawyer was already there in my mind when I applied to, to a law degree. Um, but the truth was that I didn't know what it looked, what it would look like to be an international lawyer. And I think it's only when I arrived in university that I started to question myself on, okay, but what does it mean to be an international lawyer? What actual jobs are there that I can apply to? What are they looking for? Uh, which quality can I, can I get in order to, to be attractive uh, for this market? Um, and of course, it's also in this moment in university that all the signs are kind of pointing in one direction. Um, what I mean to say is that the, the, the normal route is to, to put all your eggs in the commercial law basket. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and I think many students, and not only in Montreal, but also in the UK, uh, can relate to that. So when I was in university, I, I just tried to keep my focus on my first intention of becoming an international lawyer, even if I didn't really know what it entailed. But I, I, I simply started to do those extracurricular activities that volunteering, moot court, uh, research project with a professor. And, and I knew that eventually I would see the opportunities coming. And I, I think we'll, we'll get to it later. So I, I'm going to keep it a bit. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. That's great. Thank you. And, um, and as you said earlier on, um, you know, you, you came to London, you experienced life in London a little bit. Um, I, I'm, so, I'm sure that part of that was one of your reasons for why you wanted to do your LLM. But, but why did you do the LLM at King's and, and why did you choose to focus on the transnational law pathway? So, um, well, you're, you're right, of course. Uh, my experience in London shadowing barristers and just enjoying the city when I was looking for a master's degree that the UK came to my mind directly. Um, but even before that, I mean, as I said, I was trying to build myself this international lawyer profile. Mm -hmm. And of course, studying abroad seemed like the next best thing to do after my my undergraduate degree and like you said this connection with the UK was was just there and was calling me <laughs> to go back and but the thing is I, I quickly realized that a public international law LLM was not necessarily what would differentiate me the most I mean it's a program more classic that is offered by many universities and during my undergrad, I had done a specific uh, research project 
on the Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights, also known as UNGP, when they, like two years after or three years after they had come out. So I was kind of interested more in not only in the public international law, but also how it interacts with commercial law and human rights. And and so this is, and, and when I did this research during my undergrad, my interest in business and human rights began. And so when I saw the transnational LLM that King's was offering, I just thought it was the right match. And I kind of didn't look further because of course King's ticks the box in terms of the prestige it enjoys. And of course the campus, <laughs> I, I, would, I would be able to, to go to. And, and so that's why I, I chose specifically the transnational LLM at King's because it was innovative in itself compared to other, other LLM offered in other universities. Yeah, and we're delighted to have someone with your background on the podcast because lots of our students are interested in sort of human rights law. But, it, you know, well, again, we'll come on to this a bit later on. The path to becoming a human rights lawyer is not necessarily that clear by comparison. So um, that's really interesting what you said. Um, so what skills or, or, and or knowledge did you acquire from your legal studies, which you would say have been useful in your career to date? Well, well, a little disclaimer is that my career is just beginning. Yes. <laughs> I, am sure, I am sure later on I will be able to add to my list um, of what King's brought to, to, to me on my on my daily life in a, on a broad on a broader picture. But uh, certainly I would say that uh, on a daily basis, I use the writing skills I developed at King. Um, in the transnational law LLM, uh, most of assignments, are essays and written assignments. And this is where you choose the topic, you discuss the topic with the professor, you need to be persuasive, you need to add and be creative because you want to add something to the existing scholarship. So it's really challenging. And and, and it's a great, great exercise in, in terms of practice makes perfect. Because even before touching upon your dissertation, you have done so many research on your own. You have conducted so many researches on your own. And so definitely now, whenever I send an email, whenever I, whatever it is for more resources, whether it is directly to the prosecution or, or, or the, the trial chamber, um, you need to have those kind of this confidence as well in, in your writing skills because you don't always have so much time to do it anymore. But I, I think that that's, that's for one, for sure something that King brought to me. And I would also say more generally, just a, a boost in confidence. Um, I think the professor at King's and in my, in my particular experience, were extremely supportive and were extremely uh, empowering in their way of teaching, their way of being interested in your ideas, in the way that they were ready to connect you with other professionals and, and introduce you to people. And so in that sense, it was a, a very good experience. And, and I know I, I was very lucky. I was two professors asking me to be their research assistant just without me doing any Kind of steps towards them but that's that's only one example but you have many other ways to connect uh, with your professors and and it was very empowering 
Yeah, that sounds it. I mean, uh, I, we're, we're recording this at the start of the new academic year, and I know we have a lot of LLM students who will be really interested to hear that, actually having that sort of open mind and making the most of the contact you have with your professors, as well as any employers that may be, you know, connecting with LLM students from King's and elsewhere, and all coming on campus, whether that's in person or virtually. So I think that's yeah. some really great sort of advice. Um, so what did you enjoy most about your time at King's? Um, apart from what I've just said, which is already a big, a big chunk, um, I did enjoy, uh, because yes, on top of all those, uh, all those connections you make with the professors, there's also this ongoing amount of conferences that are being given at King's. And I mean, you're in London, so already the campus is amazing, but you're in London and it's a legal hub. And you have those experts coming to give conferences at King's all the time. And they are talking about the most innovative uh, issues. And you're just allowed to come in and grab a seat and, and enjoy this, this opportunity to, to gain more knowledge on top of what you're already seeing in class. And of course, to, to go talk to those, to those uh, guest speakers and lecturers and so on. So those two things for sure were great about my times at King's and maybe less about education and more about people for sure um, the friends and other connections that you made uh, during the LLM, the LLM I think King's has a particular um, culture of community I felt a great sense of community and especially when the pandemic started and I was in London it was the last three months of our LLM and I think the support from uh, a student to another, that's what kept the LLM alive <laughs> for us yeah. because all of a sudden it was still unknown what was happening if we would ever be able to go back to campus or or, or see each other in person. But but I felt like we were not alone in that sense. So really really great uh, community, great student community. Yeah, and I don't definitely agree from what I've seen from the outside, but uh, yes, and it is great um, as of September 2021 to be seeing people in Somerset House again and, yeah. uh, and, <laughs> sure. and connecting in person. So it's great that you had that experience, albeit at the end, you know, that, that went away. Mm -hmm. So you're now, let's fast forward to now, you're working yeah. at the International Criminal Court in The Hague, which was for many of our listeners, I'm sure that is a bit of a wow moment that we have someone, <laughs> uh, on our podcast working there. So let's talk about um, what attracted you to criminal defence work, because it, it, it is a specialism. It's not yeah. for everybody. Yeah. How have you ended up doing that? Well, I'm sure I'm not the only one who ended up doing something a bit by chance or 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 by coincidence. Um, actually, I did my the equivalent of my traineeship um, at the ICC. There was this Quebec lawyer, which was a defense counsel at the ICC, and this is this was one of the few opportunities to perform my traineeship outside of Quebec, so abroad. Um, and the funny thing is, is that <laughs> during my undergrad, I had not studied international criminal law. Nice. I had studied many other public international law uh, specialties, but not this one. And so it was kind of ironic that I ended up here. But in the end, I did love my internship and I did love working for the defense. 
it just well I, I'm gonna talk about it more and more but well you're gonna see and after my studies at King's because my traineeship was before and after my LLM there was an opening um, in a defense team of a case I had not worked on and that was in a phase that was quite interesting because of my interest for business and human rights there's this big theme of how to remedy human rights violation and this case happened to be in the phase of reparation mm -hmm. so basically after the conviction of an accused there's this whole process that begins of trying to establish the financial liability so we kind of leave the criminal law part of it and we kind of enter this more civil responsibility theme so very different and I thought this was fascinating because there's very few cases that went so far. It's a very young court. And so I was very happy to work on that specific uh, case. And well, which is the Tanga, it was for Mr. Boscun Taganda. And of course, there's much to do to enhance the process, but I was very happy to join the team in that very specific timing. And uh, later on, an opportunity opened in the team I had done my internship and I had learned so much with them so I applied for the position I got rehired and um, I'm extremely happy to work again with my colleagues uh, which with whom I had such a good good relationships in general so and now that the the case is at trial I have new challenges in relation to my role and I love now being back into the litigation aspect yeah, well, you touched upon sort of my next question there, and maybe it is that there are many parts of it, but what, what would you say is the most challenging part of your role? Is it that you're going between litigation and, you know, a very different type of phase of a trial like reparations, or is it, you know, what else is it that it, that makes it, the, you know, a challenging uh, role for you? Um, well, I think you, you've, you're kind of going in the right direction. Um, like I said, before I, I didn't study international criminal law and I didn't study the Canadian well not that I didn't study I studied the Canadian criminal code but it was not a love story at all right but when I arrived in, in here at the court and now back in the team to me the Rome statute is more succinct and straightforward and I, I had known the Geneva conventions almost by heart because I love humanitarian law so navigating statute and jurisprudence is quite okay, but I believe now my challenge as someone who just joined the case again, and so like you said, I went from reparation, which is very technical and legal, to back to a trial case, mm. and where there's huge, like a, a humongous factual background that needs to be analyzed. And when you are in law school, you see a judgment but it's a judgment with a polished factual background, if I may say. You only have the relevant incident and details. And what you need to remember, and I don't think I have seen this necessarily in law school, is that before this polished version, there's a lot of backstage investigation and uh, investigation work and analysis and analytical work uh, that is performed by the lawyers on both sides. So while it's not necessarily my task to investigate and analyze, I have to 
keep up to date with the factual elements of the case in order to have a meaningful role in my team. And I think that's very new. I didn't do this during my internship. I didn't do this when I was in reparation. So that's really new to my current role now. But I, I'm happy to experience this challenge. So that ongoing intellectual challenge that we quite often talk about, about why people become qualified lawyers or barristers. So that is very much, you're very much living that um, yeah. on a day to day. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's really interesting. And I think it, um, it is, yeah, it's a very different type of uh, challenge that you are facing. So, um, you know, people, I think I think criminal criminal defence work is is more easily portrayed on television and in films. So <laughs> in that way, I suspect there are lots of myths about um, what the realities are. Uh, what's the most common myth or myths about your work? So, <laughs> so I think, and I would tend to say that the biggest myth is that defense lawyers are not per se seen as the good guys. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Um, because they would purposely be on the wrong side of things. And when I hear this from people without a legal background, I'm kind of more, I'm happy to discuss and, and explain exactly our role. But I am I, a bit surprised when I, I hear this from people with uh, a legal background. Um, but I, I still take the time to explain more about the role. But uh, the truth is that most of, most of the people I know in the defense teams at the ICC are actually young female lawyers or jurists. They are defenders of human rights. They believe in a fair trial. <laughs> they want to work towards achieving justice. So it's, it's nothing gloomy and it's nothing good side or bad side. It's about defending justice and fair trial and the interest of your client like you would do in any other case. Mm -hmm. And and to the opposite of what it could look like from the outside, it's a very human human work environment, and and it's very motivating. Um, and this, yeah, it's it's human because of the the type of colleagues that I, I end up having, which are super inspiring, and also to work directly with with the client. Um, that actually is is also a human. No, you need to kind of get away all the glamorous part of what is the ICC is to see the, the real people involved. Yeah, and actually something just to touch upon that I know we spoke about when we last uh, caught up, Laurence, is about, uh, um, you know, what, what it's been like starting a job at the ICC um, in the midst of a global pandemic, because I, I assume that you have been home working for some of it. Is that correct? Um, I think the access to the court was always open, depending on if you really needed to access the facility. So I, since I arrived here back in The Hague, I have been doing kind of a, a mixture mm -hmm. of, of uh, in and out uh, from home and at work at the office, I mean. And now that I've, I'm, I joined my team again, that is at a trial phase, of course, we are every day at, at work. So. Yeah. Yeah, so it's just interesting because everyone will have a different, uh, depending on what type of law they do, yeah, what type yeah. of job they do, of different experience. That's interesting to hear. So, um, so how can students uh, or graduates access internships in this area of law? Because as I said before, it, it does sometimes seem quite difficult to get clear information. And it's very different mm. to the commercial law firms that have very set processes yeah. and vacancies on offer and also you know the opportunities and the the wherewithal to be able to advertise those very broadly so if someone wanted to get into the type of work that you're doing now mm -hmm. 
how can they get experience within it? Well, just as an example, um, for the ICC, let's say to get an internship at the ICC, the real trick I would say is to apply as much as you can. Mm -hmm. um, it's a huge organization and there are like, uh, that's what I heard. And I think I, you can see it when you go down the cafeteria, seeing all the interns there, there are about a hundred interns that are at right. the ICC at all times. Uh, of course, it was not the case necessarily during the pandemic, um, but, and, and so they have a three to six months internship. So that's 200 plus internship per year. Mm. Uh, so to apply often to different sections of the court is definitely a good strategy. Um, and then for other human rights organization, there are websites specifically dedicated to human rights jobs and there are Facebook groups of people interested in international law and human rights that keep sharing posts and so on. And so there is there is place uh, to, to find those internships by yourself. Um, the only downside of it all is that most of those internships are unpaid. Right. Okay. And this is this is very kind of it can be shocking. <laughs> depending on depending on where you are from. Uh, for me in Canada, all our internships in law are paid, absolutely. And I think it's also the case when you do your traineeship. Um, so you, you cannot see it as the same kind of experience. And you, you need to also look sometimes for fundings. I know at the court, depending on where you're from, you might be eligible for funding. Um, and I would say that when you are building your own background, if you already know that international law, that human rights law is something that interests you, I think it's important to go for, for certain key experiences that people will be looking for. And those moot court competition are super important. And I mean, most of the people I meet in The Hague have either done the Rousseau competition, which is the French uh, French speaking competition or the, the pique or so of course those are those are in French possibly and not in English but the just up would be an example as well or or if if not a mood board then a legal clinic is another super interesting experience so something to show that you have interest in the field and that you have applied your knowledge outside the context of mm -hmm. a school exam is, is a really important thing and I guess the last trick to get to know about opportunities in the field is to talk <laughs> professionals that are in it. And you have LinkedIn and Twitter that can be great tools to, to, to simply go and, and build connections and a network uh, and, and look for those people and connect with them and, and with a genuine purpose and intention. If you're looking for an internship and you contact somebody, that is in the field and is actually working at the organization you want to be working at. Well, tell them you're you're ready for an opportunity. Don't don't be shy and there's nothing to be ashamed of because let's say you contact me or somebody from my team and you just ask general questions about the field. We will never assume that you're interested mm. in an internship, whether at the moment or later. So it's important to make to make it clear. 
having that confidence that you talked about earlier yeah, on definitely. and and uh, I think this is like we, well, we do talk to students a lot about this um, being curious about where a degree or an LLM or both can take you but also yeah. you know going beyond the usual websites go you know thinking about those connections so social media is a gift in that respect isn't it but I, I really like what you just said there about contact contacting somebody with a purpose because yeah. professionals in my experience and I'm interested to hear from yours as well are generally happy to help people who are genuinely interested going into Absolutely. their area of expertise but they're also time poor so it's much better to be <laughs> clear about what you're expecting from them did you find that when you were sort of going through that researching phase for your career options and that people were generally quite quite happy to help Absolutely I definitely messaged uh, people when I was in London, I messaged people uh, throughout the, the the whole process, and and I and I did, and I didn't aim at somebody that just started in the field. No, no, I messaged partners, and partners yeah. were ready to meet with me, whether in person or or through Zoom, and that was, I mean, wonderful. But of course, if if they are not ready to give you an opportunity on the moment, which most of the time will happen, but it's still all such a such a good first step to establish a connection so so i yeah it definitely helped me as well yeah because you never know where if you if, it, if an opportunity does come up and that you've made a good yeah. impression on someone and they think oh well i remember this person actually exactly. maybe that if they're still in the market for something exactly. yeah so that so your personal brand is i guess is what we're talking about here mm -hmm. isn't it building up that personal and professional brand which is which is so important so, um, and we may well have touched upon this already, but but what advice would you give to students as they consider their career options? Because as I said earlier, it, law is a very diverse field and there's almost too much information about some parts of it and not enough about other parts of it. So mm -hmm. really keen for someone who's you know navigated this already, what, what would you be saying to students as they consider what, what to do next beyond their studies? Well, of course, my experience might have been different in the sense that I really knew what I wanted to, to try or to do early on. Um, but I would certainly say to, to keep focused on, on that thing that motivates you. If something doesn't, if a job doesn't excite you, but you apply for it just because you saw the advertisement, that might not be the right strategy. It has to excite you and, and you have to give yourself the time and be patient as well in order for those opportunities to appear. I mean, I remember starting my um, the bar school in Quebec uh, without an internship being secured. And all of my friends had their internship secured because commercial firms can recruit two years in advance, but those international internships were only available two or three months in advance. So you could only apply two or three months. So I had to wait and wait and wait and hope it could work. It would work. And, and that's what paid off for me to keep focused and to, to build my profile in one direction. And, and, and yeah, and I think your motivation for a specific field or a specific position will show during the interview. So just to have that already, to really know that this is something you would like, will give you like a, a step, will, be, will take you a step ahead of, of the others. Yeah, I think that's great advice. 
Um, I think we're coming to the end of our time together. Um, it's gone very quickly, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. But before I let you go, I just want to remind our listeners that we'll be back soon with another edition of Let's Talk Law, where we'll gain some more insights into Life Beyond Kings with one of our alum. But in the meantime, on behalf of our listeners, thank you so much, Laurence, for joining me today. It's been wonderful chatting with you. And I'm sure many of our listeners will really be grateful to hear a little bit more about the insight into the criminal defence work that you do. And just, um, you know, someone who's come to the UK and then has gone somewhere else now, had very much an international (laughs) career already. So thank you so much for your time. We really do appreciate it. Thank you so much, Caroline, for allowing me to to come to the podcast. And I hope it helped a little bit (laughs) anyone listening. And of course, same same applies. Do not hesitate to reach out. (laughs) That's very, very kind of you. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.